Well, if this is your first time joining us, my name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors of the church. And this morning, we're continuing the Shepherd King series, which basically follows the life of David through First and Second Samuel. And if you're not too familiar with the life of David or maybe sort of new to the whole Bible thing, I'm going to get us all caught up to speed. So, so no, no worries there. See, you may know David as the greatest king that Israel ever had. But that's not where his life began. Actually, David begins as a, a very unlikely candidate for kingship. He was a young shepherd. His entire job was to take care of sheep. So as you could imagine, this is not a real glamorous job nor a highly social one. He, he, he's a bit of a societal low-rung dude. But his life changes completely and utterly in just one day. See, David was the youngest of eight brothers. And one day his dad asked him to go to the front lines of battle where his older brothers, who were actually old enough to be in King Saul's army, were fighting. But when David gets to the front lines, he realizes actually no fight at all is going on. Some of you know this story. There is a giant named Goliath, a Philistine, who is coming out from the ranks of Israel's archenemy army and taunts the army of God, the people of God, and even insults Yahweh himself. And when David arrives, he hears it, and he looks at his countrymen, and he's kind of confused because he's thinking to himself, wait, why aren't you guys fighting this dude? Doesn't the Lord fight for us? Why, why are you so terrified? But no one in Saul's army will go, so this very unlikely adolescent goes in their place. And the most unlikely thing happens. He actually ends up chopping Goliath's own head off with Goliath's own sword. And he sends the Philistine army packing. And David's life would never be the same. He actually never went back to the sheep. Uh, Saul that day made David sort of a general over his army. And as a result of God's hand being on David, he experienced wild military success. Everywhere he went, armies were routed and Israel, the kingdom, was more and more established and David was winning more and more battles on Saul's behalf. But as you saw last week, instead of being grateful for David's God-given military gifts, Saul becomes murderously jealous. And much of 1 Samuel records Saul's attempts on David's life. And maybe more amazing than David's military skill or his incredible musicianship is the fact that on multiple occasions he has an opportunity to kill Saul, this murderous first king of Israel who is forcing David to be on the run for years. And instead of killing him, he shows him mercy. And it's all because of his love for and respect of God's anointing over Saul. And so where we left off last week, this rightful King David, who's already been anointed future king, is hiding in a cave like some common criminal with a band of his own army. Very, very small. But between then and where we find ourselves, 1 Samuel closes. And it ends 
with Saul and Jonathan in a fierce battle that ends up taking both of their lives. So Saul the king and his son Jonathan, David's best friend, die at the end of 1 Samuel. And 2 Samuel essentially opens and describes sort of the golden era of David's life. David in 2 Samuel 2 becomes the king over the southern region of Judah. And then in chapter 5, he becomes king over all of Israel. And Jerusalem, the capital city, is renamed the city of David. And he sends the Philistines packing again. And suddenly for the first time in his life since the fight with Goliath, David is at peace. Peace within his borders and peace outside. And for the first time, he's free to be what he was anointed to be, king. For the very first time, David is the unquestioned God-anointed king in Israel, and now we get to see what he'll do first. And whatever he does, we know that it will tell us quite a bit about what's important in life. Now that there's peace outside and peace within, what David will do is going to show us a ton about what really matters in this life. And so we'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What's David going to do now that he's king? David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. That's like the best warriors. 30,000 of them. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, what's the deal with that? 30,000 warriors just to go pick up some religious artifact? It seems a bit overkill. I mean, I I don't know about you. I actually, when I was a kid, uh, much to my parents' chagrin, I got in fights at school all the time. And now my parents are hippie pacifists in California. Like, this, this drove them absolutely crazy. And sometimes when I would get in a fight, if you've had this sort of childhood, you know that sometimes when you fight someone, you actually plan the location and time for which you're going to fight, which is amazing. It's sort of like if two 12-year-olds can agree on a time and location where they are going to fight, maybe they could just agree not to. But you, know, but, you know, you go, and I would always bring like one or two guys with me just in case things went south. You know, you're like, okay, I I can take a beating, but what if he has a group with him or something like that? You know, I take one or two. 30,000. That's David's entourage. And that tells us, you know, you look at it, you go, it seems a bit overkill. It actually tells us just a little bit about the significance of this ark that David is going to retrieve. See, this ark is not just some religious symbol. If you read the book of Exodus, the Ark of God, which was supposed to be the very center of the, the tent of meeting, where it was actually synonymous with God, the creator of the universe's very presence. The one who created everything out of nothing promised his chosen people, Israel, that he would manifest his presence in a majestically unique way at this Ark. And he promised he would speak to them there. 
In fact, the covenant between God and Israel that they would be his chosen people to bless the whole world was kept within that ark. And through sacrifices, God and people could meet in relationship there. 30,000 people for something like that is nothing. But the question still remains, why is this his first act as a king? Why nothing else before us? Why is he saying the first thing we've got to do is get that ark and bring it into the center of Israel, the capital? Well, along with everything I just told you about the ark, the ark was actually meant to be the centerpiece of Israel's life and worship. So when David says, the first thing I'm doing is bringing this ark into the capital, he's actually saying something incredibly significant. He's saying, as long as I am king, worship is going to be the center of life in my kingdom. By going through all this effort to bring the ark into the capital city, he's saying, as long as I'm here, worship it's going to be the center of life. And that's really what this passage is all about. It's the big idea we're going to unpack along the way today is that worship is the center of life. Worship's the center of life. Now, of course, that raises the question, well, what do we mean by worship? Because worship is one of those like religious words that you use so much that you might as well just interchange it with like gobbledygook. Gobbledygook is the center of life. Because it's like, what does that actually mean? What is worship? What's this thing that David is so bent upon making the center of Israel's life? In fact, what is this thing that's the center, meant to be the center of all life? Well, whenever you have a tricky theological question, remember, you always ask Tim Keller. You always ask Tim Keller. Okay, Tim Keller is a pastor and a theologian in New York City, someone I plagiarize quite often. Uh, but actually, let's get this right. As long as you say you're doing it, it's not plagiarism, so it's cool. Um, but Tim Keller, I think, succinctly and beautifully distills the very essence of what worship is. He says worship, this thing that David wanted to bring into the center of Israel's life, is really a, a two-part thing. It's seeing God for what he's worth and giving him what he's worth. Worship is seeing God for what he's worth and responding by giving him what he's worth. Keller unpacks the definition a little bit more by saying, worship is treasuring God. I ponder his worth and then do something about it. I give him what he's worth. When David brings the ark into Jerusalem, he is saying that the very center of our life together, whether we're at battle or at peace, at work or with family, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, the center of all of it is seeing God for what he's worth and then responding by giving him what he's worth. That's the big idea of this passage. Worship's the center of life. But really, the rest of 2 Samuel 6 unpacks what happens to David and what happens around him when he does this, when he makes worship the center of life. And what we'll see are really three things that I think all of us at all time share in common when we decide to make the very center of our life seeing what God's worth and giving him what he's worth. We're going to see three things that happen to David. 
And the first one is this. Worship brings change. Then secondly, we'll see worship brings opposition. And then finally, we'll see that worship brings unbridled enthusiasm. So let's start with the first one. Worship brings change. It's probably the most significant one that gets the most airtime in this passage. So we'll pick it up. 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 3. So David's decided, we're going to get the ark. It's coming to Jerusalem. Verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. So always keep in mind when the Bible repeats something, there's probably a little significance to this new cart. With the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. The transportation of the ark starts with the best of intentions, right? Of course, you know, like this is the centerpiece of Israel's worship. We should get a new cart for it. Okay, makes sense. Seems like it's starting with the best of intentions. So There's a slight problem. This is a direct violation of Numbers 4.15, which says that the ark was to be transported only by hand by the priests. And so David begins the transportation of the ark with the best of intentions, but it's actually disobedience. And I think what's happening here is I do think David knows better. As king, he was tasked with studying the law and knowing the law. He knows it's not meant to be carried this way. But I think in the fanfare of becoming king, and maybe, I don't know if you've experienced this, he's known the Lord for so long. And I think the things of God are beginning to be treated with a little irreverence in David's heart. And so he replaces obedience, which would be carrying the ark properly, with good intentions. Oh yeah, we should just get a nice cart for it. And now we'll see in verse 5 the results. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. That's a capital offense. He is not a man who is permitted to touch the ark of God, the place where God manifests his presence. And the Old Testament teaches that in the Old Covenant community, this law being broken was to be punished by death. He's defiling that which is the essence of God's manifest presence. But we'll see why he touched it in these next words. He says, or it says, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Why? For the oxen stumbled. This is David's The oxen stumbled carrying the new cart, but no oxen and no cart is meant to transport this most important religious artifact. And so the the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah, with good intentions, commits an act of disobedience just like David. He reaches out and he grabs it. Verse 7 
And the anger of the Lord, that's the Lord's holy and righteous wrath, not some out-of-control outburst like I have from time to time, but no, this is a holy act of God's justice. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now we'll see in verse 8 David's response. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. There's some debate with this Hebrew phrase as to whether David's angry at God, angry at Uzzah, or just angry at the entire situation. I generally think he's just angry at the entire situation. And that place, picking up in verse 8, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. Remember I said worship brings change. This is a positive change. This is a positive kind of fear. You know, when the king loses reverence for, awe of, and and fear of this holy creator God, it brings tremendous danger to the entire community. This doesn't mean that David is terrified of the Lord. You know from the Psalms, he has this beautiful intimacy with him. What it was is a switch where seeing God for what he was worth made David realize how glorious he is and he was not to be tampered with. He wasn't to be treated with irreverence. And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord, verse 10, into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Worship brings change. David sees what God's worth and his heart changes. He's no longer approaching the Lord with sort of irreverent good intentions and casting aside obedience. Actually, in the very next verses, what you, what you see is that David actually m- makes a second attempt. He sees the blessing that's coming to this guy, and he goes, okay, actually, we do need to bring this ark into the capital, Jerusalem, and we do need worship to be the very center of life. But when you read the description of it, you notice there's no more oxen and no more carts. They're carrying it properly by hand. Worship changes David, and it changes him in specifically this way. He no longer substitutes good intentions for obedience. He no longer substitutes good intentions for obedience. And sort of in a really joyous, kind of exciting way, this brings up the question for all of us to consider. And the question is essentially this, where has obedience been replaced with good intentions in your life? Where's obedience to God been replaced essentially with just good intentions? I I actually, this is very uh, convicting to me, and I I do want to say the point is not for this to be uh, just convicting. There's actually something more hopeful coming. But we have to start with, how does this read us? And this reads me, like when I look at this and I ask this question, where have... I replaced obedience with good intentions, I actually, the immediate thing that comes to mind is what happens to me in the evenings when I come home from work. Um, I love my job as a pastor of this church. I love you guys. It's a privilege for me to get to do. And I have a really hard time leaving work at work. I, I can be one of those people, maybe you have had this feeling where you're physically present, but really mentally you're totally somewhere else. 
And then you add to that a smartphone and you are just jacked. Okay, like, I'm like, emails, we're on this thing called Slack that's supposed to make, like, life better, and I just go berserk on that thing, and it's, it's a thing, you can look it up. Or it's like text messages or whatever, or, you know, I'll admit it, sometimes it's just like Instagram, because, I don't know, I like pictures. So, like, I'm doing this, and I'll tell you, my intentions often are pretty decent. I love being a pastor. I want to serve you wholeheartedly. I want to shepherd this church the, in the best way I can. And so I, I just, I'm always looking at it. And, my, and it's like, oh, it's the best of intentions. I'm trying to be a servant. But, you know, I've noticed, especially since Soren was born, that, uh, you know, the Bible actually gives me some pretty clear objective commands about how I'm supposed to be a father. I'm supposed to delight in my son first. Secondly, I'm supposed to instruct him. And then thirdly, I'm supposed to gently and lovingly correct him. It's kind of the three-pronged approach to parenting in the Bible. And here I am with my good intentions, wasting away time that could be spent with my son actually obeying. Obedience replaced by good intentions. So I think the question is, for all of us, where is that for you? Where are good intentions replacing obedience. Uh, I have to say that one of the most common places I see this in my own life and in others is with money. Money is just a classic place where good intentions can replace obedience because the intention is what to be wise. Oh, I'm saving because that's wise, and, and it is, and it's good. And I'm, I'm putting away for a house, I'm putting away for kids to go to college, I'm putting away for retirement because that's what's wise and good to do. But then there's that point where it actually replaces obedience because in order to do that the way we really think we should, we sacrifice obedient, sacrificial generosity. And so we've gone with good intentions instead of obedience. I mean, you also see this, most of us, like in, in our careers, right? Most of you, you're probably like, it, it, we're in this place in our careers where it's like, I'm crazy driven. I got to get ahead. I got to get going. And that's awesome. We should be good at our jobs. We should provide. We should work hard. But that good intention becomes disobedience when we do that instead or in place of loving our coworkers as ourselves, doing our work as worship, seeing God in the midst of all of it. You should work hard. Just shouldn't do it without God. And of course, like, Let's be honest, in a church where most of us are in our 20s and 30s, a place we see this go awry almost all the time is in relationships. We have the best of intentions, I'll assume, when we sleep with one another before we get married or live together before we get married. And what's that like positive intention? Well, I feel like we should really know each other before we get married. How can we do that if we don't sleep together first and know if we're like compatible, which is such a joke. Um, <clears throat> that proves you don't know anything about sex. Um, and then, or, oh, we should like live together to make sure that this or that. Dude, it, like that's all gonna be easy. And, and so what we do is we say, I have the best of intentions with this, but what I'm actually doing is saying, God, this thing that you've created, I know way more about it than you do. And so we replace obedience with good intentions. Now, I don't know where that is in your life, but here's what I want to encourage you with. The point of this passage is not to get stuck on that question. The point of this passage is to see what changes you. 
What changes us is not this question. What changed David was actually seeing what God was worth. Seeing like, oh my gosh, he really is that holy. And he's that majestic. And he's that incredible. And I love him because despite me not being holy and majestic, he loves me and he forgives me. And so I love him in response. And therefore, why would I want to go with good intentions when I could actually love him and therefore do what he commands? You see, what changes you is not seeing where you're screwing up. What changes you is having your sin not point you further inward but outward to this God who would love you and forgive you in Jesus Christ. See, when you place worship at the center of life, it changes you because you see God for what he's worth. Now, the second thing that worship does to us, the second thing it brings is not just change, it's opposition. It's opposition. We'll pick this one up in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, so this is round two, and no one's died. Michael, the daughter of Saul, she also happens to be David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. This was a day of blessing, and some of these foods were thought to be aphrodisiacs at this time. Then all the people departed each to his house. So you get the point. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, his own wife, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. This is that spiritual gift of sarcasm coming out. <laughs> Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. What she's saying he's doing is that he was shouting and dancing and worshiping with all his might, and he exposed himself along the way. Now, I seriously doubt that's what actually happened because in this passage, it actually tells us that David's wearing like priestly garments and those have like multiple underlayers to them. So I'm doubting he actually disrobed himself, but she's not too pleased with the situation. And she's claiming you did this so that these women would see you. You did it for vulgar sexual purposes, as she says, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Worship, seeing God for what he was worth, and in David's case, giving him what he's worth, and he is worth shouting and dancing and all this stuff, it, it brings opposition. And this is not opposition like, you know, Michael looks at David dancing and goes, you know, I don't like your skill, you're a little off step, you know, your, your air flare needs some work. That's not what's going on here. She's despising his, what we'll get to in a mo moment, unbridled enthusiasm for God. She's despising it. Now, what I love about this scene of opposition is how easy it is actually for all of us to relate to it. 
Because most of you, if you put at the center of your life, seeing God for what he's worth and then giving him what he's worth, your primary opposition is probably not gonna be physical harm or someone trying to intellectually demolish your faith. Those may happen, but primarily, we're gonna receive this kind of opposition. Perhaps well-meaning, people close to us, even within perhaps the covenant community who just wish you would calm down about this whole Jesus thing. He's like, that's great, David, you're king. It's great that you love the Lord, but can you please take it easy? Do you have to be so fanatical about it? Do you have to talk about it all the time? Do you have to give your money to it? Do you have to spend all this time with this, these people? Do you have to share it with those who don't yet believe? Like, can you just calm down? That's the primary opposition, and it's really subtle because it makes you think, yeah, man, maybe I am a freak. Maybe I am one of those people that's just like, shut up about it, and I'm at overboard. And, and you know what? If you are, someone will tell you, but I don't think most of us in this room, our primary struggle is I'm just so enthusiastic about God that I'm obnoxious. Maybe like one or two of you. But primarily for most of us, the kind of opposition we're going to face is people just telling us, calm down about it. And in David's response, we'll see the third thing that worship leads to. Yeah, it brings opposition, but let's see how he responds to it. Verse 21. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me. I love that because he doesn't defend himself. It's the polar opposite way that I respond to conflict. When I'm accused, I just like my inner lawyer comes out, which is essentially my father, and I just start to like run through all the reasons that I'm actually in the right here. David doesn't do it. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. He's essentially saying, I'm not going to defend myself because I'm not doing this for you. And I wasn't dancing for anybody but the Lord. I, I really only have one audience here. I will make, verse 22, myself more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. He's saying, I'll get even more unbridled in my enthusiasm for God than you're seeing right now. Because I've placed at the center of my life seeing God for what he's worth. And therefore, it's him that I'm primarily concerned about. And so he gives God what God's worth. In this case, unbridled enthusiasm. Worship brings unbridled enthusiasm for God when we see him for what he's worth. Now, I want to be careful here. Because I know that many of you in this room love Jesus genuinely. And, and yet, unbridled enthusiasm uh, may not be the perfect description of your emotional predisposition or just your emotional disposition toward God. And I, the last thing I want to do is to cause you to doubt whether you have a relationship with God through Christ or not. And so I want to encourage you that though worship absolutely brings unbridled enthusiasm, please remember that the foundation of your relationship with God is not anything you feel or do. 
The foundation of your relationship with God is all that Christ has done on your behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. And so what God has done to bring us into relationship with him does not hinge upon our feelings, but upon what Christ has done in our embracing him through faith. And having said that, and that being completely true, I do wonder, like does the unbridled enthusiasm that David experiences here, does that like make any sense for you? Is that something that like just at all resonates? See, the reality is that we have every reason to be even more enthusiastic than David. I mean, David had an ark, an artifact that was the symbol that was synonymous with God's presence where he would meet his people. We have Jesus, the true ark of God, the sacrifice that could mediate, the one thing that could mediate the relationship with God and humanity, the true high priest who passed through the heavens to live, die, and be resurrected so that we could actually be forgiven, redeemed, and reconciled to God. Jesus is greater than an ark. We have something greater than David had. And if you're in Christ, if you've put your hope in Jesus Christ alone, his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, not only do you have Jesus greater than an ark, but you've been chosen for something far greater than David. David was chosen to be king over a particular people. In Christ, you've been adopted as sons or daughters of the king over all peoples, over all the universe. Sonship is a whole lot better than kingship. And so unbridled enthusiasm makes sense for us in light of who God is and what he's done. When we see him for what he's worth and give him what, is wor what he's worth, we don't become singularly emotional, just like happy clappy all the time. It's not like that. It's actually something far deeper than that. It's a joyous, unshakable hope but it should at various times lead to unbridled enthusiasm. And so I think, you know, if we just step back for like one moment from this passage and sort of ask the question, so what? What, what do I do in light of this? What I would encourage you in response to this passage is not to, okay, I just gotta go out and seek a feeling. And there I've got it and that's what I want. Because I'd rather you seek something better than a, a feeling, God himself. In response to this passage, what I want for us as a church is that we would be a people who actually do and are known for putting at the center of our life seeing what God's worth. Where it's like, okay, in my job, whether I eat, drink, work, whatever I do, I'm asking God, show me what you're worth. Help me to actually commune with you right now. This isn't just like, okay, have a quiet time in the morning and let's go. It means like, as you're going, it's show me what you're worth. I wanna see what you're worth and actually give you what you're worth in response. For some of us, it's actually confessing maybe unrepentant sin in our life because that short circuits this sort of joyous communion, seeing God for what he's worth. Yeah, for others of us, it could be like as simple as, okay, I want to actually sing 
David sings, I'm going to like look up these songs and, and sing them myself on my own so that literally no one can hear you uh, except God, which is for many of us the way singing should go. And, and just, but it, giving him that unbridled enthusiasm in song. My poor son actually gets just constantly exposed to me singing because he's the only one that doesn't judge. So we just, we sing. And maybe for you it is like, you know what, I want to read the scriptures more regularly, but it's not like, oh, because I have to, because I'm weighed down with duty, and here comes the like, have another quiet time application. No, no, it's like, no, I actually, I want to see God. I want to see this glorious, like I've been reading through John lately. You just see Jesus. You're like, yes, I want to follow him. Like he is incredible. I mean, if you think Jesus was altogether passive, you just like read John Five, you're like, wow, he's so authoritative and glorious and yet compassionate. I want to follow him. In response to this passage, would you give yourself to at the center of your life seeing Jesus for what he's worth? Treasuring him. And then as Tim Keller says, doing something about it. Doing what makes sense in response. For some of us, that's going to mean more unbridled enthusiasm. For some, it's like obedience that needs to replace good intentions. For others, it means facing opposition with joy. But really, the heart of this is what changes you. Seeing God for what he's worth. Beholding his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and therefore being changed from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray.